Happy Father's Day. This probably will be a little difficult for me, I'm a little emotional. My wife and I spent uh, a good bit of our life in this church. We love the people. And I feel a little naked today because she's not with me. But she's alive. She's with our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for that I am grateful. Years ago when I was your pastor, I preached a message on Mother's Day entitled, uh, was from Proverbs 31, on the, the virtuous wife who can find. The passage goes on to explain the answer to that question. And uh, it uh, talks about she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She works willingly with her hands. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is early, provides food for her household. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She perceives her merchandise is good. She extends her hand to the poor. Her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments, sells them. Strength and honor are her clothing. She opens her mouth in wisdom. She her tongue uh, on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. After the service, I was shaking hands with people and uh, greeting them. And um, one gal who was rather outspoken, uh, she uh, walked up and uh, she said, I get so sick and tired of hearing about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, who does all the work for her family while her husband sits on his behind at the gates of the city. And uh, she used a more graphic word. And it was she said it loudly, so everybody halfway back from the church heard it. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. She has a point. So often we go after wives and expect a lot from them. And I had a dear wife who was every bit a Proverbs 31 woman. But today we want to talk about a virtuous father who can find. And the challenge before a father can be just as daunting as the challenges before a mother or wife. A virtuous father who can find his love knows no boundaries. Turn in your will, if you will, to turn in your Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 15. And I'd like to walk you through this well-known story, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But a more accurate description would be the parable of the loving father whom Jesus uses as a human-sized illustration of our Heavenly Father's love for us. Before we unpack this passage, we need to set it in context. So often when we study the Bible, we don't consider the context, and for that reason we end up with all these strange interpretations. And uh, I teach Bible overseas, as some of you know, to Bible to pastors in Burma, primarily now. And uh, one of the things we teach them is how to study the Bible, and there are three rules in studying the Bible. 
Context, context, context. If you read the context, it will often explain the passage that is confusing. And that is certainly the case here. In verse 27 of chapter 14, we read, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He has been speaking about discipleship. Verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was using the figure of salt, which preserves and flavors food, drawing us to eat and consume what food is set before us. Saltless or bland food is rejected. Right, Jack? He's a, he's a salt champion. When he gets a salt shaker, we fought over it last night. Give me that salt shaker and give it back. And we're trying to shake it, shake it. Salt is a critical component of making food attractive and tasty. But the point here is that he's focused on his disciples. What exactly does it mean to be a disciple that is serving as salt in the world? That's the question we begin chapter 15 with. In chapter 15, we read in verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. Why? Because Jesus was like salt, drawing them to himself and to the salvation he came to provide. But not all those listening were drawn to him. And so in verse 2, we read about the scribes and the Pharisees. And they complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How terrible. The major problem with the scribes and Pharisees is they were saltless leaders of Israel. They did not draw people or lost Israelites to God and his salvation through Messiah. They turned them off. So Jesus speaks two parables directly pointed at them to show how far out of step they were with God's purpose. The first parable, of course, is the one we know well, the parable of the lost sheep, which identifies with men. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin, which identifies with women. And it's interesting, as you study Jesus, he doesn't just talk to men, he talks to men and women. And he often alternates his illustrations and his parables and his principles to speak to both. Now, clearly, these two parables go together and emphasize the joy that the Pharisees and scribes as leaders of Israel should have as they lead this nation. But it's a par- it is a joy they don't have, and it's clearly clear that they are not filled with the kind of joy and and excitement and and love for people that would have drawn them to him. He's not ordering them to be joyful, but reasons with them so that the joy they should have springs from the heart. Now, Jesus is not talking here about how to have eternal life. That's through faith alone in him alone that we have eternal life. It's a gift, and it comes through faith. He's speaking here primarily about discipleship, and he's taken a brief diversion here to talk about the 
failure of the Israel of Israel's leaders to be the kind of people that can lead others to a deeper walk with God. He's talking here about people who, because of what they are hearing and seeing from Jesus and his disciples, are turning around in their spiritual journey toward the living God. This is good news, about which all disciples of Jesus should be ecstatic. And this leads to the next parable, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. And as I mentioned, I would prefer the parable of the loving father. As he was speaking to the Pharisees and scribes, he probably looks up and over the multitudes around him, and in particular, all those who would be his disciples. And he said this, verse 11, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, I believe we've got some of the passages up here. If you didn't bring a Bible or bring a version perhaps different than mine so you know where I'm at. Notice he begins by saying in verse 11, Then he said, a certain man had two sons. He said this to his disciples. This is discipleship truth. Notice there's no unto them, referring back to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's not talking about the religious leaders here. He's speaking to his disciples. At this point, he seems to be speaking about discipleship. And you'll notice that in chapter 16, verse 1, where he continues... It says he also said to his disciples, so it's implying that what truth is remaining in chapter 15 is spoken to disciples. And obviously the scribes and Pharisees were listening as well, but the truth in this next parable seems especially oriented toward those who would be his disciples. And it's truth about the loving father. That's the key. He had spoken about the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Chapter 15, verse 10. Now he wants his disciples, including you and me, to know why there's so much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The heavenly joy originates with a heavenly father who is full of love and compassion. So he shares another parable, this time to reveal the kind of love and compassion that characterizes the heavenly father. And he's taking a human-sized illustration of a father that is particularly uh, helpful in our identifying the traits that we can spot in our heavenly father. And he says, a certain man had two sons. Verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me all the portions of goods, the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, his wealth. Now the father here is not God incognito, but the love of this father is a human-sized picture portraying, again, the infinite-sized love of our Heavenly Father. Now in every culture, including our own, this request of the younger son would be outrageous and offensive, wouldn't it? Would you want your son or daughter to come and say, Give me my share of the inheritance now. I want to get out of here. I hate you. I hate your life. I I want nothing to do with you. By making such a request, you're saying to your father or mother, you're as good as dead to me. An inheritance is a bequest that occurs when one dies. 
in the Middle East as well as in our own culture. That was saying, the, the son that was saying this, the younger son, he's saying, in effect, you're as good as dead to me. I want nothing to do with you or your way of life. I imagine there are some here today who have said that to their parents or have had it said to them by their children, a son or a daughter, essentially saying the same thing. Now, in the Middle East, in that way of life there, the father was expected to explode and discipline the boy by striking him across the face. How dare you say that? A slip of the tongue might end with a slap in the face. But if the younger son is sincere, making such a demand as in this case, as in, in the Middle Eastern culture, the father is expected to openly admit in the presence of the local village that this son will get no inheritance upon his death and has been cut off from the family. This would be followed by what is called a kasasa ceremony in which two barrels full of parched corn and nuts will be brought by the father's family before the whole community. And they would break that jar or barrel. And then the children would go about saying, the other children in the community would go about saying, so-and-so has been cut off from his inheritance and from his family. This would signal what he is also to be cut off from a relationship with the entire community as well. So not only is he cut off from his family, he's cut off from the community. This served as a powerful lesson to the children who were part of it. Don't do that. Got it? Now, what, knowing what little we have seen about Middle Eastern culture, even from our perspective in America, it should be no surprise that this is the way things were done. But what is a surprise is that this father goes along with the boy's request. We're not told why the father went along with that request. But if you consider the direction of the story depicting the great love of the father, it suggests that the father went along with this request out of love, realizing that some lessons can't be learned except the hard way. That ring any bells? Could that be the reason why our Heavenly Father has allowed us to have our way at times? And even granted us what we've asked for, wished for, dreamed for, for so long, even though it would take us down a road that leads to a dead end. But he allows it because he loves us. And he knows that's perhaps the only way we can learn the lesson. Note that this is based upon cultural studies of the ancient Near East, and it would be assumed here that the older son, in this case, as the trust was separated, the wealth was separated, that the older son would receive his inheritance at that time as well, only it would be put in perhaps trust overseen by the father until his death, at which time the older son would then assume the responsibilities of overseeing the household and the wealth that would be kept in trust for him. 
Now, this inheritance was considerable in Jesus' illustration. It involved great financial resources, herds of animals, many servants, a large home, a reputation and standing in the community, along with other things. Apparently, the younger son was only interested in his share of the financial resources. It was all about the money. And so we read that he took that, verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. And there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Apparently, the younger son had been planning this for some time. Furthermore, the community in which he was raised would not sit still while he squandered his share of the inheritance on prodigal living. Had he hung around that region, in that area which he grew up, the village, the hometown, might eventually have had their own kasasa ceremony. After they saw him sell what he had possessed, particularly to the Gentiles, or married a Gentile or impure woman. Knowing this narrow-minded way of life and thinking, the younger son said, hey, I think it's a good time for me to leave. And so he leaves and goes to a far country, in Jesus' illustration. Where we landed, we read that he spent his inheritance on prodigal living, meaning he spent his money and resources freely, recklessly, wastefully, and extravagantly. As we would say, he spent his money on wine, women, and song. How many young men and young women have walked down the path of this prodigal son, made famous by our Lord in his teaching? As in his case, the outcome of walking down this path is never pretty and most often tragic. As a pastor, I've seen it happen over my 40 years of ministry. We read on in verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land. And he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, famine would have been a powerful image describing the tragic consequences that were beginning to be experienced by this prodigal son. Famine results in no way to feed yourself. When you consider that the lion's share of a person's income in that day, particularly of peasants, went for food, you begin to get the picture. It created a, a depression, leaving people with no way to earn money to feed themselves. And there were no soup kitchens in that part of the world at that time for foreigners, and especially for Jewish foreigners living in a Gentile world. So what happens when people are so desperate for the basic necessities of life? They find people to hang on to. Some of you perhaps have experienced that. And who offer them some measure of hope of meeting their needs. So this prodigal found himself a, a Gentile citizen in this country. He had gone for after leaving his own country, and we read that he joined himself to this man. He stuck to him like glue. Now, how do you get rid of a leech? How do you handle someone that's clinging to you like glue? You give him something to do, you know he will reject. So this Gentile man sent his Jewish clinger into the fields to feed the pigs. 
No Jew would accept that. But to his surprise, this one did. Pigs were unclean animals in a Jewish man's mind. However, things went from worse to devastating, as they often do. He became so hungry for food that he began looking at the shrub pods the pigs would grub berries from as potential food for himself because no one would give him anything to eat. This is a terrible predicament. But then in verse 17 we read, But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, repentance began when he realized he had hit rock bottom. Likewise for us, repentance. It begins when we've come to the, a dead end on the pathway we thought would lead to happiness and bliss and it led to tragedy and sorrow. When we finally see we have come to that dead end and turn around and begin looking for a way back out of the tragic circumstances we find ourselves. This is when the process of repentance begins, but it is a process. Repentance is not an immediate decision. It's something that is a process. And it's something we need to experience if we've gotten into the far country as believers in Jesus Christ. He's not speaking here to non-Christians or non-believers. He's speaking about his own people. And he wants them to be his disciples. But instead, some have chosen to go into the far country. So he says, how many of my fathers, this, this prodigal son comes to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? He remembers the blessings he once enjoyed, e, that even his father's hired servants had bread to spare, and he is starving to death. And so he says to himself, 18, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Now we see that in the process of repentance, he is full of humility. As we would say, he's a broken man. And this could be just as easily said of a woman, by the way, a broken woman. He remembers he is a son, but a humble spirit drives him to consider himself unworthy of the privilege of being called a son. Therefore, he purposes to come with a request to be treated like a servant. He knows he's a son. That doesn't change. That's important. But now he says, I, I want to be treated like a servant. Notice that repentance is more, again, a, a journey than a decision. First of all, he recognizes that he's hit rock bottom. Second, he desires the blessings he once enjoyed. Thirdly, he purposes to humble himself before the one he had forsaken. And lastly, he, his repentance was still only something he'd resolved to do. For it to be complete, he must actually do it. He must do what he resolved to do. And so he arises in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, we read. Now, this took a lot of courage, for he knew that the village would be hostile toward him in the light of all that had happened. After all, he had given his wealth, he had been given by his father, and he gave it to the Gentiles. Once the community got whiff of this, and perhaps it had already gotten there, 
they would be having their own kasasa ceremony and cutting him off from the whole community. But he set off anyway, focused more on mending his relationship with his father than anything else. The journey of repentance was well underway. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. This human father does not know how terrible of an ordeal the son has been through, although he probably had a good idea, as most of us as parents do. He knows that a terrible ordeal also awaits him once he gets into the city and returns in humiliation to a village community that has no compassion. If you want compassion, don't walk out into the world. They don't give a rip. But the father does. They only have contempt for this boy who would treat his father so terribly and squander the inheritance, no less on Gentile country and abundant, terrible living. So his father, out of love, is compelled to act to protect the boy from the village and the impending kasasa ceremony. So what the father does in this homecoming scene can best be understood as a series of dramatic actions designed to protect his son from the hostility of the village and restore him to fellowship within the community. His actions begin with his running down the road. An Oriental, it says, and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. An Oriental nobleman with flowing robes never runs anywhere. I found this out when I was teaching in Egypt. And... Uh, I was uh, working with B-World and was teaching courses on Bible and theology, but every morning I'd get up and go for my run. I'm an American, you know? Get on my jogging outfit and go out there and trot up and down. I didn't make much time. But all of a sudden, I'm looking around. People are looking out their windows. What is this stupid fool doing? Running. You don't run in that part of the world. Unless there's an emergency, your, your house is on fire. A father likely running through the village in this parable, was drawing a crowd. Where in the world is he going? It was a humiliating posture, running. The father makes the reconciliation public at the edge of the village. Thus the son enters the village under the protective care of the father's acceptance. Rather than experiencing the ruthless hostility... He deserves and anticipates the son witnesses an unexpected and visible demonstration of love in humiliation. The father's acts replace speech. The love expressed is too profound for words. Only acts will do. His kiss is a sign of reconciliation and forgiveness. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could finish his prepared statement, his father interrupts and says to his servants, bring out the best robe, likely the father's robe for festive occasions, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, a symbol of trust and authority and sandals on his feet. 
household freedom. That's what those sandals indicate, unlike servants that had to go barefoot. But the father said to his servants, verse 22, bring out the best robe. Bring out the ring. Bring out the sandals. All of this was designed to send a message to the community, to the servants, and even to the son himself that his reconciliation and restoration was complete. There were to be no reservations or caveats. That's an important principle that we need to think about when we think about forgiveness and restoration as a result of our Father's love. Verse 23, And bring the fatted calf here. The fatted calf was a large animal compared to a goat or sheep. Why the fatted calf? Because it implies that the whole village was going to be invited to this celebration. The whole village. And kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He wasn't saying he was dead spiritually. He's not talking about eternal death here. He's talking about the fact that in practice, he was not part of the life experience of the father or the older brother. He was lost and is found. They began to be married. Now, what has this provocative parable of Jesus taught his disciples up to this point? Just as the prodigal son wasted his possessions on prodigal living, God's children, our Lord's would-be disciples in particular, can waste their spiritual possessions, their physical energy, their strength and time, and their opportunities on living a life apart from God who saved them. Think of where we, what we were given as God's children when we believed in Jesus Christ. We were given his life, eternal life. We were given his spirit, the Holy Spirit. We were given his word, the word of God. We were given his world, a context, a living context in which we can live out the life he has given us and learn much from it. He gave us his inheritance, a privilege of sharing as co-heirs with his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. An inheritance full of eternal potential in reigning with him in his kingdom to come if we faithfully lay hold of the opportunities he's given us. The loss of such an inheritance is very real, friends. The prodigal son cannot go back and regain the wealth he squandered. That's an important principle. Nor can he go back and regain the time that he wasted. Nor can he go back and undo the poor health that he probably is living with as a result of his prodigal living. And neither can we. A deep sense of unworthiness brought on by repentance upon the part of the child of God who has become a prodigal son needs to be restored to all the privilege of sonship, symbolized by the robe, the rings, and the sandals. The inheritance is lost, but the sonship, the relationship between the son and the father is still there. That's an important principle. Don't lose sight of that. We are still a son or daughter of our Lord Jesus Christ, of God our Father. We still have the Holy Spirit living within us. 
And we should be treated as such when we return to the church. We are not second-class Christians who've come back to the church. We are believers, sons or daughters that deserve to be welcomed back into the fellowship. But we have forfeited, spent our life and our wealth, our inheritance. And we forfeited that. The prodigal never lost sight that he was a son. He felt he was not worthy to be called a son, but he nevertheless knew he was a son. I want to quote something that my beloved professor Zane Hodges writes. He says, this story shows, if the gospel is properly understood, the backsliding Christian will have no grounds to doubt his eternal salvation. Even when he's in the far country of sin, like the prodigal himself, he will still know that he is a son of the Father whose fellowship he has left. Needless to say, this assurance can be a powerful incentive for the backslider to go home. If all churches taught the gospel clearly, they would lay a solid foundation for the return of more than a few prodigal sons. What do we do normally in church today? Oh, he left. He's, he's gone. He's lost. He never believed to begin with. Lastly, and most importantly, is the compassion and love of the Father, which speaks so loudly about the love of our Heavenly Father, who longs for his sons and daughters to come home after being in the far country of sin, after they've hit rock bottom. Not only is he filled with joy over their return, he has gone before us in humility of his eternal Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins, past, present, and future to make clear to all the world and to all creation that we have been reconciled and restored to fellowship with him. We've also been given honor, trust, and great privileges in our restoration. That's the prodigal son or prodigal daughter. But the parable does not end here. There's still more to learn about the love of the Heavenly Father through the other son. And this is where much in the teaching about this passage stops. And we don't want to stop here. The older brother, who in so many ways is a picture of those believers in the church who have done well, but who resent those who get off being losers. You know, why are we accepting that person back? They've been in the far country. They've done this, 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 and this. They've embarrassed Christ. They aren't even Christians. Why are they in here? So we read verse 25. But his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants, the young boys. Uh, They weren't servants that were serving inside, but they were younger boys. I think the word has that idea. And asked what these things meant. And they said to him, your brother has come because he has received him safe and sound. The word sound there is the word shalom in peace. It's a celebration of restored harmony. Your father has killed the fatted calf, but he was angry and would not go in. That's the older brother. He wouldn't go in. I'm not going in there. This is terrible. This was a great insult as the older brother would be expected to be the most, the host circulating among all the guests inside, helping them feel at home, making sure they were, their needs, their desires were being met. And so here he is. He said, I'm not going in there. 
Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Notice, he runs out of the city to meet the younger son so he wouldn't get blasted by the city. And now he's got the older son. He leaves the light, the lighted banquet, and he goes out to the older son who's got a problem. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. He's not saying he was never sinned, but he was saying he'd been a loyal and obedient son. And yet you never gave me a young goat. He thinks that's a sign of favoritism. He was favoring the older son, the younger son over the older one. That I might make merry with my friends. The older son thinks that the banquet is for the younger son to celebrate with his friends. That it's a reward. Verse 30, but as soon as this son of yours, he won't even call him his brother, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, that's being judgmental, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, son, and the word for son here is tekna, which in Greek is the word for a child, because he's acting like a child. And he says, because, he says, you have always been with me and trying to please me and serve me. I know that. And all that I have is yours. Mark that down. His inheritance was still intact, unlike his younger brother who squandered his inheritance. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead as far as we were concerned and is alive again. He's not talking here about eternal life. And was lost and is found. If we are honest as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have all been one or both of these sons at some time in our life. I know I have. I need the message of this parable. What I did not need was a strolling, strongling, struggling, pardon me, as an older or younger son is in some way, some well-meaning Christian to come along and say to me, you know, Arch, maybe you're not a Christian after all. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe your faith didn't take. Maybe you didn't believe the right way. Maybe you didn't go forward in church far enough. Or you didn't get under the water far enough in the baptism. Friends, that kind of theology is a travesty. Cutting the heart out of God's grace and distorting the gospel itself. What I needed and what we all need when we are in the role of the prodigal or the judgmental son is certain certainty that we have and always will be God's sons and daughters. But will we respond to our Heavenly Father's love and compassion toward us when we are in the far country of sin or acting like judgmental Christians? Finally, this parable goes to the heart of our mission on this earth as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus emphasized before he ascended into heaven, he says, therefore, going, we're all going, we're all busy, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. However, the attitude and mindset is to fill our heart as we go to minister to others on behalf of our Lord, and it's an attitude of love and compassion. We need to be like the Father in this parable, as fathers, as mothers, as children of God, 
We need to be full of the love and compassion and grace of our Heavenly Father. When it comes to a son that's in the far country or a son that's being judge and jury, yes, there's a place for rebuke, a place to bring things into perspective. But there's a place also to run in the flowing robes, embarrassing ourselves, but reconciling with a son who's in the far country. Yes, this is a parable about repentance. It's about jealousy and being self-righteous and judgmental. But most of all, it is about the love and compassion of a father who ran to meet his younger son and who came out to entreat his older son and who reminded him of all that I have is yours. You haven't lost your inheritance, but you've got a bad attitude. Shape up. It's about a father who loves us with everlasting love and whose grace knows no boundaries. A father who so loved us, he even gave us his only begotten son to die for our sins, that whoever believes in him, doesn't say whoever lives a perfect life, but whoever believes in him at some point in time, that person will never perish, but has eternal life. He has become, she has become a child of God the Father. There's a lot of application here for you as fathers and mothers. As we raise our children, we need to always be ready to accept the child back who's been in the far country of sin. We need to be ready to reason strongly with those children in our family who are judgmental. But most of all, we need to remember that this is a picture of our God and his relationship to us as his children. And we've all, at some point, probably been in the far country, at least at some measure. Or we've been the judgmental son or daughter. And we need to correct our behavior. Return to the loving arms of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your truth and for how it ministers to our heart. How it explains to us how we should be living in these days. How we should relate to each other as church family as people who love you deeply. We pray, Father, help us. Help us to be all that you want us to be in these difficult days in which we live. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.